0: and I uh, have four kids, some of you know that, and our oldest is eight, our youngest is two years old, and we were talking about this week the difference between the two-year-old and the eight-year-old, and it got me thinking about how in the world did my eight-year-old move from that stage of the baby diapers, and you know, they, she thought I was awesome just because I'd pick her up above my head, like that's all I had to do, and she thought I was super cool. And now she's at this stage where she wants to talk about like, how do you make friends? And she's learning stuff at school that I've forgotten or probably never learned, and uh, She's asking me questions about why God made things a certain way, why the world is the way that it is, and I'm thinking, you're talking about wanting to make friends. What happened to when you would sit down next to another kid, you wouldn't talk for an hour, but somehow you were friends? they play with blocks, and they were wearing diapers, and they're louder, and they're messier at that stage, but they seemed to be easier to me. And what happened was she moved from one stage to the next. She moved to the next stage. She's now in elementary school, and she's at that stage of life, and eventually She'll go from elementary stage to junior high, from junior high to high school. And after high school, she'll probably either go to college or get a job or do something along those lines. And, and then eventually she'll be 50. She'll want to get married and have kids someday. And it'll be then, like continually there's stages. And some of you have kids that are at different stages. They're already driving the car or they're already out of the house. Or maybe they're married or maybe they have kids. And you're thinking about the next stage for you. It's natural to always be thinking about the next stage. When you're in junior high, it's natural to think about what is high school like? When you're in high school, it's natural to wonder, what's next after this? Am I going to go in the military? Am I going to get a job? Am I going to go to college? What, what's next? Then after that, what's next after that? And when you're single, oftentimes, those of you who don't have the, the calling to be single, you think, what's it going to be like to be married? And then once you're married, what's it going to be like when we have kids? Once you have kids, what's going to be like when they have kids? There's always the next stage. And it's natural to think about the next stage. And the same thing is true for us spiritually. See, a lot of us don't think about the fact that there are stages in our spiritual growth. There's a next step. See, when you're born into the kingdom of God, you're a baby. You're born again. Jesus talks about that in John chapter 3. He's talking to the teacher of Israel, and he's explaining to him, if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to be born again. And when you're born, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you place your faith in Jesus, now you're a baby in Christ. But what happens for many people is they stay at that stage for a long time. And, and it would be weird for us to see a 20-year-old man or a 30-year-old man wearing a diaper and drinking out of a bottle. But sometimes we meet believers in Jesus Christ that that's essentially They've been Christian for 20 years. They've been a Christian for 30 years. They're still babies in Christ. And if you don't see it because they're drinking a bottle or wearing a diaper. Thank you for the cue. That is awesome. Um, but we don't see it because of that. We don't see it because they're wearing a diaper or drinking out of a bottle. You know what we see is we see people that can't feed themselves. We see people that uh, throw a fit when they don't get their way. Uh, We see that people can't handle difficult circumstances, difficult situations with any level of spiritual maturity. They're babes in Christ. That's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to progress in our faith. We see that all throughout the scriptures. We see Paul tell his protege, Timothy, he calls him his son in the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he gives him some spiritual exhortations. Read the scriptures aloud amongst the people. Don't let them look down on you because of your youth. And he gives multiple exhortations. And then he says this in chapter 4 verse 15. Be diligent in these matters, all the things he just told them. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. So there's a progress and you can actually see the progress. He's not wearing a diaper and drinking a bottle anymore. He's dealing with things in a different way. You see some changes in him. This guy's a pastor. You see, Paul say it to a group of believers that we're going to talk about today in Ephesus as the church has matured and gotten older in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this to them. He says, then you will no longer be infants. He's giving them some exhortations as well. You'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Don't buy everything that comes along. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. So you're supposed to be a spiritual growth process. We're supposed to move from one stage to the next stage. The author of Hebrews says it like this. He's he's basically saying to them, you're not growing up. You're you're not changing like you're supposed to change. In Hebrews chapter 5, he says this. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. You still need to be taught. You still need someone else to feed you. The elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. A few verses later in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings. you are supposed to move to the next stage about Christ and go on to maturity. You're supposed to move from one thing that you're at to the next stage. And so I just ask you this today. What's next for you? I realize we have a diverse audience. Some of you have been Christians for weeks. Some of you have been Christians for years. Some of you aren't Christians yet. What's next for you? Your next step might be your first step, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Let today be that day. Your next step might be something else for one of you. What is the next step for you? See, it doesn't just happen. We can think with our kids. We see them in a little diaper, and they're two years old or whatever, and, and we think that just somehow they ended up with the car, and they're driving away. What happened? And it seems like it went by really quick, but there were a bunch of intentional steps between that phase and the one they're now in. There was feeding them meals. Probably three times a day if they're like my kids snacks in between There was probably a lot of life lessons how to brush their teeth to how to balance a checkbook To help them move from one stage to the next And say we're going to talk about three must-haves Things that we must have if we're going to move from one stage to the next spiritually So we'll ask ourselves the question what's next and we're going to look at it in a passage of scripture in Acts chapter 18 Go ahead and grab your bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 18 We're going to look at two different scenes here two different stories of people that were ready to take the next step spiritually. Acts chapter 18, and we're going to be beginning reading in verse 24. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can look there. We left off last week in verse 11, and so it could seem like we're just skipping this stuff in between. Let me tell you what it is that's there. Verses 12 through 17 in Acts chapter 18 is really just proving the promise that God had made to Paul in Corinth. Remember, he promised him three things, that I'll be with you, there's many people in this city, but he also promised him a specific thing for that time that he wouldn't be hurt while he was in Corinth. And Paul goes on trial before a guy that's really famous at that time, Gallio, and he steps up before him and he doesn't get hurt. There's another guy who gets beaten up, which is an interesting part of the story, and you can read that, but it's not Paul. So Paul was protected. God kept his promise to Paul. Um, Then verses 18 through 23 really read like a travel log. And what Luke's doing here is he's getting Paul and Aquila and Priscilla to the main town that's going to be the third missionary journey, home base, Ephesus. And so what we're doing is we're trying to get to Ephesus through that, and he tells us some of the things that happened there. And one of the things Paul does is he goes back to the churches in the second missionary journey, and he strengthens the believers there. So he didn't just evangelize these churches and start them up, but then he helps feed them, grow them, help them take the next step. In verse 24, what happens is that Paul's on a trip to Jerusalem, and Apollo, or Aquila and Priscilla, his friends that we met last week, are there. They meet a guy named Apollos who's ready to take the next step. Look at it, verse 24. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man, we get a description of this guy, with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, so he was teaching here. He taught about Jesus accurately, but there was a deficiency, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explain to him the way of God more adequately. So his faith was inadequate. So here's this guy. He's intelligent. Comes from an intelligent town. He's been educated. What he knows of Jesus. He speaks accurately of Jesus. But there's something lacking. And then Aquila and Priscilla, these two, this couple, this married couple that Paul was friends with, invites him into their home. Not in public. Doesn't rebuke him there. Doesn't say, this, brings him to the house. There's more stuff you need to learn. And he goes. And he goes because he's hungry for more. He wants the truth. He wants more of God. And the first must-have that we must have if we're going to take the next step in our faith journey is we must have a hunger. We must have a hunger to grow. We must have a hunger for God. We must have a hunger, some people say, for his word. But ultimately, what is his word? It's a revelation of who he is. It's a revealing of him. We want him, and we want more of him. And what we see throughout the scripture is that God honors that hunger. He satisfies that appetite. He allows us to meet. If we draw near to him, he draws near to us. You see, Jesus preaches in his own sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed are those. It's to happy, Happy happy. You want happiness? Here's who will be happy. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. If you want it, he will give that to you. Peter, an apostle, one of the leaders of Jesus' 12 disciples, later in the Bible, in 1 Peter, towards the end, uh, writes an epistle, a letter to some believers that are under persecution. He's talking to them about growth. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, he says this: "Like newborn babies, crave hunger, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Crave like a baby craves milk. You ever been around a newborn baby? When they decide they want milk, guess what? There's only one thing that will satisfy them: milk. Been in a restaurant before? Baby starts crying. Oh my God, just give that kid what they need. Like is what you're thinking." On an airplane, you're thinking about somebody else's kid. Or it happens at your house, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you run upstairs. You get up there. You can be present. That's awesome. You can hold them. That's very nice of you. You better have the goods. (laughs) Trust me. You better have the milk. That's what they want at that moment. It's a hunger that can only be quenched, that can only be satisfied by the milk. Peter's saying here, crave pure spiritual milk. This is the truth of God's word that reveals God. That's how you will grow up, is that hunger. You must have that hunger. Apollos has this hunger. We see it. Go back in our passage here, verses 24, 25. It says, Meanwhile, there's this guy. He's a Jew named Apollos. We see where he's from. He's a native of Alexandria. That doesn't mean a lot to most of us. Alexandria, though, becomes the, the scholarly center, the cultural center for Christianity. It's where a lot of our great minds, Origen, Clement, a lot of the church fathers came from. Um, that's where he's from. It's an educated town. They've got the most famous library in all the world. I read one commentator this week that said, Alexandria rivals Athens. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about Athens and what they were like. And so he comes from a very educated place, but not only that, he doesn't just come from a place that has a lot of education, he himself has a lot of education. We get three descriptions of them here in verse 24 and 25. The first one is, after he came to Ephesus, it says he was a learned man, but he didn't just know stuff. You know, you meet people sometimes that they just know things. I was thinking about this this morning. I had a friend, I remember playing trivia games with him when we were in seminary together. He just knew stuff. It's like, how do you even just, it's like it just dropped in your head. No one read that. Like, how do you just know stuff? This guy didn't just know stuff. He knew the most important stuff. He knew the scriptures. It says he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the book of life, of the scriptures. And then it says the next thing that he had been instructed the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor. And so he didn't just have knowledge, but he had passion is the second thing we see. And word for fervor is to boil from within. It's so that you're hot about something. So it's not just that he knew the scriptures. The scriptures changed him. It moved. He wasn't just teaching like write some stuff down on the chalkboard. It'd be good for you to remember some of this stuff. this This is the most important stuff you can possibly know. And it changed him. And so it came through. And he taught about Jesus accurately. And so what he knew about Jesus, he taught accurately. But what we see is that what he knew about Jesus was inadequate. The very next phrase. Though he only knew the baptism of John. The John that's being talked about here is John the Baptist, who's in the New Testament. He's in the Gospels. But... He's really an Old Testament believer because he comes before the cross of Jesus. And what John did is he pointed people to what Jesus would do. He didn't talk about what had been done. And so he said, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But he didn't talk about how he took the sins away. What happened? When it happened? What happened after? With the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? So his message was accurate. It was great. But here's where it brought people to. I fall short of what God desires was a message of repentance and that's a great place to be you got to come to that place but it's not enough all by itself just to realize that you're not good enough for god and that's what apollos do and that's what he was preaching fervently and that's what he was preaching accurately and then these people come aquila and priscilla this kind couple they're tent makers we learned about them last week they're friends with the apostle paul they know more about jesus than apollos does and so they invite apollos into their home and he goes and why does he go? Because that very fervor, that passion, is the thing that boils within him and gives him a hunger for God. He's tasted some, he wants more. He's hungry. Have you Ever been hungry for a certain thing? You talk about babies craving milk. You ever get hungry for something? You get a craving for a certain thing and you want something or you feel those hunger pains. Maybe you wake up, maybe you woke up this morning and you felt hungry. Or you just, maybe you skip lunch one day and you're going, well, I need to eat. Like, there's, I need to eat. Or you smell something, your nose draws you in and you want that thing. I think we all know hunger to some degree. I think about my kids with that. None of them are babies. So the craving uh, milk like they did at that time is not what they do, but they always want food. They walk, they're like little birds that walk around their mouth. You can just drop stuff in the way that they, they we'll eat a meal and they'll ask for a snack like five minutes later. I don't know if any of you parents have that experience or not, but they, they eat all kinds of stuff. And you see it. If you ever clean out the van that we drive, we drive a minivan One of the amazing things about our minifan is the seats fold down in the back. And so I'll fold the seats down in the back, and it's like, wow, where did all this stuff come from? And there's just treasure everywhere. It's all garbage, actually. But I go to pick it up, and I'll find little candy wrappers, and I'll remember our life experiences together in that van by cleaning it out. But I've actually pulled out of there before sandwiches. If I'm going to be real candid with you, I pulled out sandwiches. I didn't know what they were because they were black. But I pulled out sandwiches... And look at them, they've had one bite in them. Now, I've seen grilled cheese before in there. They have like one bite out of it. I'm like, you're saying you're hungry all the time. you got a whole sandwich here with like one bite out of it. Here's something interesting. I've never found a candy wrapper that only had one bite out of it. <laughs> it's the way that it is. You know why they're hungry right after a meal? Because they didn't eat the meal. They want the snacks. And I started thinking about that this week. And the way my kids eat physically is a lot like how a lot of us eat spiritually. Because we satiate our appetite. We fill ourselves up with little snacks. And sometimes it's sinful stuff. Sometimes it's things we have a longing for God, a desire for God, and we fill that gap with other things, with our idols. We've talked about that before. Sometimes it's not sinful stuff. Sometimes it's just distraction. It's like, it's like eating, uh, you remember those little twists you can get at Taco Bell's fried nothingness, cinnamon twist. It's like eating that, or eating cotton candy. It's like just, there's nothing there. There's nothing really, it's not I guess it's bad, but it's just kind of bleh. And we fill our I have a up with that spiritually sometimes. We distract ourselves with things that just waste our time. Sometimes we fill ourselves up with just little snacks, spiritual snacks. It's like It would be like eating yogurt or a banana or something. It's not bad for you, but it's not, that's not enough. And so we'll listen to somebody else's thoughts about God. And we'll hear about their relationship, whether it's from their blog or some little blip on the radio, or maybe it's just you only eat once a week. You come here for the things I'm going to teach you right now. Do you know what happened if my kids only ate snacks? They'd be malnourished. They might be emaciated. They would definitely not be healthy. It would be really hard to move from one stage to the next with that basic thing not covered. But that's what a lot of us do spiritually. And, and we wonder, why don't we hunger? Why don't we want Him? Because we fill ourselves up with either junk or little bites, just enough to get by, just enough so that we continue to sustain ourselves, but we never learn the real meal. See what we have to do with our kids is we have to teach them this is the this is the feast this is, it's the meal that that's where you get the meat, that's where you get the potatoes, that's where you eat your vegetables and and I know you want yogurt later, and I know you want a banana or some sugary thing and, and all that, but, but I've got to teach you to enjoy this. see, we read that verse earlier, first Peter chapter two and verse two. And I'll read you that verse again, but I want you to get the next verse. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, Like, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now how does that happen? Verse 3. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to experience the feast. You have to realize how good the meal is. And then you won't be satisfied. It's great to get a blog idea or something from the radio or a verse a day kind of idea, devotional thoughts that are out there. Great to hear a message, but that's not enough. You, you need it yourself. See, that's an experiential statement. First Peter chapter 2, verse 3, Psalm 34, 8, that you have to experience it. Have you ever been in the scriptures before and, and you realize God's speaking to you? It's like the, the words come off the page. And it's not just that you're remembering a story from a long time ago. It's not just that you're learning facts that would be good to pop in your head for whatever reason. But it's like that stuff that was written down a couple thousand years ago is speaking directly into what's happening in your life at that moment. And you realize at that moment you're connecting with God. That's what it is to taste and see that he is good. That's what it is to have the feast. And once you have that, it develops a hunger in you for more. That's how you begin to crave it. You develop a taste for him. And once you taste him, then you want more of that. You want that. You're not satisfied any longer with just a snack. You're not satisfied any longer with the other stuff. You need him. I saw it with a young lady in our, our e-group this past week. She was sharing her life story, and she told me I could share some of it. And what happened essentially with her is that she grew up in a, a home. The way she described it was they did church. We would do church, lived in this small town, they'd go to church afterwards, they'd talk about what church was like, and they'd critique church, and they'd talk about the things that were happening and the people that were there. She says, "Well, there's like something was missing. it was God. They just did church. They didn't experience God. She trusted Christ when she was younger, and she came to Southbridge about six years ago, and she said that was the first time she'd experienced God's presence at church. Isn't that sad? But she said she loved it. And she would, she'd be sad when the services were over with because she'd want to get back so she could be fed from the word and experience God's presence. And she longed for it. A long story short, four years ago, she got disconnected from the church and was away. now she's been back for about a year now. And she was telling us as a group how she's back at that place where she's just longing for more of Jesus. She wants Christ, but she feels inadequate. She feels like she doesn't know enough. She begins crying as she's telling us about these desires and these inadequacies. And she's feeling like it's terrible because of what she's lacking. And I don't know what the rest of the group was feeling, but I almost felt envious of her because I saw the passion of her hunger for God. So it wasn't about how many facts she knew and all that other stuff. It was, I want him. She had tasted him and then he was gone. And then she wanted more. Didn't want to play church. Didn't want to just do Christianity. She wanted Him. It's a hunger. That's where Apollos is at. That's why he goes to this home. That's why he is so teachable. It's the very thing that moves him to the next must-have that we see. He, we must have a hunger. but Then we see we also must have a humility. He, what he does is he goes to this home of Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Then, When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they heard that something was lacking. So apparently they came up to him after he was done speaking. and They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. And he goes, and he listens. Remember what we just were told about this guy in the verse before. Comes from Alexandria, educated place. He's a learned man. He's probably got a degree. The main degree is then to be philosophy or rhetoric. He's probably a speaker. He's probably gotten his degree in rhetoric. He's a passionate speaker. He knows the scriptures. The thing he knows about Jesus, he knows accurately. And Aquila and Priscilla come to him. Now think about who Aquila and Priscilla are. We met them last week. They're tent makers. I don't have a degree. They run a business. They're not scholars in the scriptures. They're regular folks. They're not the speakers. They were there attending. They're not Paul. They're friends with Paul. Paul's the guy with the pedigree. Paul's the guy with the degrees. Think about what this guy could have done. He could have been like, "Uh, did you just hear me back there? I, I was the one speaking with passion. I was the one that everybody was listening to. I was the one teaching the scriptures accurately. I'm the one who has, excuse me, where did you get your degree? Oh, you're a tent maker. Okay, and you wanted to tell me about what? Who, how, you, oh, you're friends with a guy who knows a lot of stuff. Okay. But he doesn't do that. He goes. He goes into their home, and he humbly receives the word from them because they knew things about Jesus he didn't know. And he wanted Jesus he was humble enough to be teachable you see pride is one of the greatest obstacles to any spiritual growth you want something to stop you from going to the next step want something to stop you from going to the next phase pride will be a great thing to stop you don't think satan it was his sin you don't think that's the thing that he wants to use in your life to stop you from growing to get you to the place where you think well they can't only certain people can teach me only certain folks with this type of background or they've been a Christian longer than me or you've you got to come up with whatever your scenario is. or You think you've arrived at some level. Then you, you miss it. Then you're stuck. You will not go to the next step while you're proud. And here we see Apollos, he wasn't proud. You ever been to that stage where you feel like you, you you got this thing figured out, like you know stuff? Isn't that foolish? Those of you who are past that stage, isn't that silly? I remember a time when I first started seminary. I thought I knew everything they were teaching me, to be real honest with you. I got there and I was like, oh, this is a lot of this, this is a review. I understand. I've read these books. I've heard this stuff. Um, for the first couple of years, I kind of cruised through in that way, just kind of with that mentality. And I remember uh, going back to the professor that I had, the very first professor I had, first class, and sitting in his office. He had become a mentor at that point, and saying to him, as an older guy, Howard Hendricks, some of you know who he is, he passed away, but uh, bald head, a little bit of gray hair on him, uh, lots of life experience. And I'm sitting in his office, and I'm telling him, "Um, you had some required reading in that first class. He said, yeah. I said, I didn't do that reading. And then we started talking through some of that. And then uh, I said, let me tell you why I didn't do the reading. I didn't do the reading because I thought when you assigned it, I already know that stuff. I don't need need that. I'm not going to spend my time on stuff I already know. And you know what he said to me at that point? Something that it meant so much because of his life experience. He said, Scott, I'm so glad that you're telling me this now. And not coming back to me years from now. He began to tell me about people. That's what happens in their life. And do you know why he was telling me that? Because it's great to learn a lesson of pride. Because then you can move past it. And some of you remember what it's like. To be at a stage of life. Where you thought you had all the answers. Maybe you told your parents that. Or whatever it was. And then you start to realize what you don't know. And that can be. That in itself is humbling. To realize how much we have to grow. See. Pride is the thing that stops us from seeing our need for growth. All throughout the scripture, it's filled with people that don't grow, that don't even connect with God. Some people, they go to hell because they're proud. There are people that at their deathbed will not place their faith in Jesus because that would make them a hypocrite the rest of their lives. Then there's people like the thief on the cross that will humble themselves at that moment and realize, yeah, all that stuff, I was wrong. That's humility. Jesus rebukes it, the church of Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, when he's talking to those folks, they thought they were self sufficient. He says, You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But do you not realize? No, they didn't because they were proud. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. They made fine clothes. They didn't realize their humility before God. They had a lot of money. They didn't realize their need. See, what happens when we're proud is we don't even see our own needs. You hear a sermon and you think, that's a great message and I know somebody who needs to hear it. And we never look at us. That's pride. It's an obstacle to growth. If you want to grow, you must have a humility before the Lord, a willingness to be teachable. And it doesn't matter who it's coming from. If God wants to reveal himself to you, you want, you want him. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. You hunger for him. And there's a humility before him. And that's what Apollos had. And then you see what happens after that. Then God starts to really use this guy. Verses 27 and 28, it says, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers, and now he's got the whole church with him. They're in this thing together. And some of you heard the message last week. Some of you were even moved by the message last week. Did you do anything about it? You realize you need other people. And Apollos, he had these other people and God uses again, these other people, Aquila and Priscilla, the kind of background type people, but God continues to use them. It says, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. And so he goes, back, he goes back to Corinth, and he encourages the believers there, and they begin to grow. And then look what he does next. He says, for he vigorously refuted the Jews. And so God uses his background in the Scriptures. He refuted the Jews in public debate, proving this from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And so they did not believe because they didn't have the evidence. They didn't believe, many of them, because they were proud. Some of you, that's why you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ because you're proud and we can talk about how it manifests itself in a bunch of different ways but until you humble yourself before jesus and acknowledge your need for him that you can't do this you cannot figure it out on your own that you need jesus christ you're stuck and you can have these first two that we've talked about though a hunger for god and a humility before god if you don't have the third one the last one that we're going to talk about then you've got nothing what happens next is that Paul comes back. He's from this trip that he had to Jerusalem. And chapter 19, verse 1, is really the beginning of his third missionary journey, the last missionary journey in the book of Acts. We've covered the first and the second already. Now we're on the third. And the third one, he comes into this town, Ephesus, where Apollos has just left. And he meets some guys that are called disciples. And in verse 7 of chapter 19, we see there are about 12 of them. It doesn't say who they're disciples of. Before I read this, let me tell you this. To be called a disciple in the Bible doesn't mean you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You can be a disciple of a lot of different people. The word disciple just means a learner. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to be a learner of Jesus Christ. But you can be a disciple and not be a follower. Scholars debate about whether the guys I'm about to read to you are Christians or are not Christians. Some people say they're Old Testament redeemed saints. Some people say that they're not believers. They're just followers of John the Baptist. To be honest with you, I don't know. I think that they're followers of John the Baptist, and that's it. Probably Old Testament redeemed people. But I don't know. And you'll get about half scholars to say one, half scholars to say the other. That's not the most important thing, so don't get hung up on that. The most important thing is what they say in this passage. And look at what it is. While Apollos was at Corinth, verse 1, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And verse 2, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Huh. Huh. Well, that's classic, isn't it? And that's kind of a statement we could write down and just kind of keep, you could keep that as a life verse, by the way. It's not the type of verse that most people pick as a life verse, but that'd be a great life verse. Because most of us, we're really cool with the Father. Our Father who art in heaven, we pray to him, we talk about him. Jesus is great, and we sing about Jesus. He died for our sins. He's our Redeemer. He's our friend. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. The spirit freaks most of us out a little bit, if we're honest. I mean, some people even call them the Holy Ghost. <laughs> I don't like ghosts, I don't care if they're holy. Just strange. And so there's a mystical element to the spirit that many of us act like these guys respond in this passage. Oh, what a holy spirit. What do you talk practically speaking? We might have heard of the... These guys heard of the Holy Spirit, okay? It, they're disciples, it says in the passage. It doesn't matter who they're disciples of. In verse 4, we find out it's John the Baptist. But they've heard of the Holy Spirit. He's in verse 2 of the Bible. Verse 2. How long do you have to be a disciple to get to verse 2? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's the Spirit. Verse 2. Verse 2! Verse 2! do you mean you haven't heard of him how long have you did you just when you say disciples let's talk about when that happened they've heard of the holy spirit what they're saying is what they realize what they're saying is we haven't heard these available to us and practically speaking that's how many of us live and we function like the holy spirit is the missing person of the trinity you know what happens when somebody's missing people panic I read a story this week about a five-year-old boy that went missing. He had an 11-year-old sister, and his parents couldn't find him in their house about 8 o'clock at night. They freaked out. They called the police. That's what you do, right? The police start searching for him. They had sniffing dogs looking for this kid, helicopters out looking for this kid. They had, uh, I think it was 12 police officers on foot that were out looking for this kid. They found him later sleeping under a sleeping bag inside their house. And that's how it is with the Holy Spirit. He's here. he has been made available to us, but as the American Church, many of us should be on a search mission. Where, where, where is he functioning anywhere? Because you look at the text, Paul says to these guys. He meets these guys; they're disciples. And then verse two says, and he asks them, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" Apparently, they're having a conversation about spiritual things, and Paul senses something's lacking. Why do you ask this? You don't just ask this question. You don't just, well, how many people have you met today? And you said, hi, how are you? Did you have the Holy Spirit? That's not that. Even for a guy like Paul, you don't just say that stuff. There's a reason he's asking the question. Something's inadequate about these folks. Something's missing. Something's lacking. And so he asked this question. Do you have the Holy Spirit? When you you believed, verse two, do you have the Holy Spirit at that point? Like what's going on with you? Because he sensed something was missing. If Paul came to us and started talking to us, do you think he might ask some of us the same question? If he looked at the church in America, do you think that he'd, he'd ask, do they have the Holy Spirit? Do you think about what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit comforts us in times of distress. The Holy Spirit interprets our prayers for us, to the Father. The Holy Spirit guides us under times of persecution, which few of us face. He reminds us of the things that God's taught us. He counsels us. It gives us power to obey God's commands. Do you think that Paul would come to us and say, do you guys have the Holy Spirit? I was reading an article this week that described the the American church and the state that we're in. It was called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. Remember, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. I want to read you a quote from this article, a guy named Ron Sider, if you want to Google it and look it up yourself. He's he's citing some Gallup polls and some Barna polls, which are Christian statistician pollsters. And he says this, Gallup and Barna's polls demonstrate that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, it's a pursuit of pleasure, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. Then he goes on to state, not only are those things true about us, but in these categories, he says divorce is more common among born-again Christians than in the general American population. So we've now moved to the place where it's more common. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel, right? It's more common for people who identify with the gospel to break off that relationship than it is people who don't identify with the gospel. So it's only 6% of evangelicals tithe. That is, you know, baseline financial commandment in scripture. The minimum level of obedience. 94%. Don't pay attention to that. It says this, white evangelicals, so specific here, are the most likely to object to neighbors of another race. So white people that describe themselves as born-again Christians are more likely than white pagan people to be racist bigots. Sexual promiscuity of evangelical youth is only slightly less outrageous than that of their non-evangelical peers. There's more, the article's long. Do you have the Holy Spirit? When you believe, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And see, the natural way for me to teach this in Christian circles, I think has been a huge mistake by us as Christians, the way that we've taught the Holy Spirit. This is what we've done. We've said, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? You answer this question. If you answer the question, yes. Then we say, then inferred is that you have the Holy Spirit. And we talk about that because of this. If you're a believer at the time of salvation is when you're supposed to receive the Spirit according to the Scriptures, so now I'm going to tell you about all the Scriptures and try and convince you that you have the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 and tell you, if you believe, then you have the Holy Spirit. I'm going to turn to, you know, if I'm really serious, I'm going to go to the book of Jude. You don't really hear Jude very much, but if you are really getting serious, you pull out Jude. Jude talks about the Spirit. And I'm going to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and talk about the Spirit. And maybe I'll even go to the passage where Jesus is prom- promising his disciples the Spirit's going to come. Jesus says to the disciples, hey, I'm leaving, but this is going to be good for you. <laughs> Sounds like he's breaking up with them to me. <laughs> you ever been dumped before? This is really best for both of us. Really? Because I feel like he just punched me in the stomach. And Jesus says to them, I'm leaving, and this is going to be best for both of us because... I'm going to send the helper. Oh, I could use a helper. Like, what are they thinking at that moment? The Spirit can come and indwell each one of us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. That's what he does at the point of belief. See, the mistake I think we've made is we've said this Are you a Christian? Yes. Then you have the Spirit. I think we should probably flip the question and ask this Do you have the Spirit? Now I know you're a Christian. Do I see evidence of the Spirit in your life? And there should be tangible, experiential evidence of the Spirit in your life. Here in this passage of Scripture, what we see is these believers speak in tongues. That's a theme that we see in the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and this is the last time, Acts chapter 19. When a new group of people places their faith in Jesus, they speak in a language, a known language. It's not talking about ecstatic babble, which we talk about in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when it speaks about tongues, says not everyone does that. So that's not necessarily the sign that you have the Holy Spirit. You know what the sign is that we see in all believers? It's obedience. It's the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians chapter 5. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, self-control. We read these articles in the stats. Do we demonstrate that? You know, unity is one of the things that we see as a product of the Spirit. One Spirit, one Lord, one baptism. And we're known amongst non-believers for arguing with each other. So, do you think Paul would ask, do you do you have the spirit? See, the issue wasn't for these guys they hadn't heard of the spirit. We didn't haven't experienced the spirit. They only knew the baptism of John. John the Baptist pointed to the spirit coming. Luke chapter 3 verse 16, John taught about the spirit. The Spirit would come when the Messiah came. They didn't know that Jesus had come. They didn't know that Jesus had paid for their sins on the cross. They didn't know that Jesus became their sin so they could be reconciled with God. They didn't know the Spirit had been poured out in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. See, what we should be teaching is this. Do you have the Spirit? Oh, then you have Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Then we go there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. I'll read it to you. It says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature. Oh, so this is how we know. But by the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So let me tell you this: if you don't have the Spirit, guess what that means? It doesn't matter if you think you prayed some magical words one day. Do you have the Spirit? Now we know you're a Christian. Then we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. If we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, all people of every education, of every race, of all times, if you receive Jesus Christ and you've been baptized in the Spirit, these are the men who divided you. Or no, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Uh, and we're, we're all given to drink of one spirit. We all experience the same spirit. It's that Ephesians verse I mentioned. One spirit, one Lord, one baptism. And we're being serious today. So Jude, Jude says this. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who don't have the spirit. These are men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. These are people who do what they want to do. One of the ways you characterize them is they're divisive. Are you divisive? There's an evidence you don't have the spirit. And we see that all throughout Christianity, fighting with each other, slamming each other in public, in front of non-believers, having talks that should be home talks, house talks. You want to confront someone, call them and put it on your blog or your Facebook. or reach out. Do you care for them? Because they're a brother or sister in Christ, right? An evidence we don't have the spirit. You're divisive. You say, well, I'm not divisive. I just have the gift of criticism. It's called constructive criticism when it's positive. You know what that means? That means you're building something, constructing something. And many people are just tearing stuff down. Are you building unity? That's an evidence of the spirit. And many of us, we don't don't have the spirit. Or there's some of us that are believers. We quench the spirit. We grieve the spirit. We don't allow him to work in our lives, and we function practically like these guys. Maybe you've placed your faith in Jesus. You're a genuine believer in Jesus. And maybe it's because you're scared of the Spirit. Maybe it's because you don't understand the Spirit. But you don't see the Spirit working in your life because you're quenching him, you're grieving him, and you're trying to live according to your own natural desires. You'll be disciplined for that, God tells us. If not, if you're not disciplined, you should be really scared. What happens for many of us is we've got like this almost a love-hate relationship with the Spirit. We love the idea of how personal he is, but we're afraid of what he might do in our lives. And so he's personal. We like the personal aspect, comforter, counselor, keeper, guide. There's all these things that are so personal. I had a friend tell me a story this week how personal the spirit was in his life. It's Brad Altice. He's on staff here. He's the director of our children's ministry, Bridge Kids. And uh, he was telling me about when he used to work at IBM, he was at a place one time, he was so discouraged, he called it depressed. He said, I was depressed. He said, I remember getting up one morning and praying to God, just encourage me today. Just bring encouragement. And he said it was to the point where he was almost begging God for encouragement. And he went to work, and there were moments where he knew that there were opportunities for people to encourage him. Could have said something about his work. Could have said something about him. And they didn't. Nothing. And he came and he he'd served at the church that night. He did some things. Nothing. Not a word of encouragement all day. He got home. He felt almost disappointed in the Lord because he felt like I was so fervent in praying that I thought for sure you'd answer the prayer. He got up to go brush his teeth. Turns the light on in his bathroom. He's got this huge mirror in his bathroom. And he says all over it, his daughter, Ashlyn, had written on his mirror all these things about how wonderful he is. Fun great dad, all these things, smart. All these things that were personal to him. So here's one of the things about the Spirit. He's so personal. He knows what you need better than you do. He doesn't always give you what you want. and He gives you exactly what you need. How much more to have his daughter than some guy that sits in a cubicle by him at IBM say exactly the things he needed to hear at those moments of encouragement? Can you just imagine, too, the Spirit whispering to her as she's writing? He needs to hear this one. Write that one out. This one will mean a lot from you. Write this one. And right when he turns the light on, I want, I want him to see this one. Because the Spirit is so personal. We want that. We long for that as believers. But he's also powerful. And many of us are afraid of that. And I say powerful. A lot of people are like, oh, I want the power. I want miraculous gifts. I want to be able to walk on water. I want to be able to victory. And you know, like all the words that we can use about that. Let me tell you what power. Power of conviction. Many of us don't want that. The conviction, not that we just, oh, I shouldn't do that anymore. No, I'm talking like, he can, he can make you not be able to sleep at night because of your sin. He can have it when you look in the mirror. What you do is you actually see your selfishness. That's the power of the Spirit. A lot of us, we don't want that. He gives us the power to obey the commands that he gives us. Many of them, there's no way we can do them. He gives us the power to do them. But if we're honest with ourselves, you've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to be humble enough to be honest with yourself in this. We don't want to love our neighbor like ourselves because that's a lot of loving because we really care about us. We don't want to turn the other cheek. We don't want to pray for those who persecute us. We, we, we don't want to suffer harm to ourselves for the sake of someone else's benefit. These are commandments that we're given. We don't want to forgive as we've been forgiven. We don't want to do that stuff. And so we kind of tuck the spirit away. It's called grieving him. We're afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit. He is powerful. He's the one that moves us so that we're not just like the world around us, that we have radical obedience in our lives, that we do the things that I was just talking about. That we're comm- a lot of times we just evaluate ourselves. I don't do these certain bad things. There's a lot of commands that are things we're supposed to do. And then we see people who do it, and we go, Those, they're like saints. No, they're just normal Christians who have the Spirit that's filling them and moving in them. I was reading from a book this week on the Holy Spirit by Francis Chan, very appropriately titled Forgotten God recommend the book. He tells a story of a couple in there that was on CBS News because they were so different than the world around them. Their name's are Domingo and Irene. You can read about them in the book. He tells their story. They fostered 32 different kids um, in their homes, and they've adopted 16 kids. They currently, they're in their 50s, and they've got 11 kids living in their home. And a lot of people are just trying to figure out how to make life real comfortable at that time. <laughs> 11 kids is not the plan for that, by the way. And if you have children, you know to have 11 of them at the same time. That requires the Spirit's power. And they have these 11 kids in their house, and Francis says in the book, he says, I've never met uh, Christians in America that have taken James chapter 1, verse 27 more seriously than this couple. to care for the orphans and the widows, and they're caring for the orphans. And he tells their story. Now, he doesn't say it like they're just all flowery, this everything's easy. He actually tells a story in the book about one of their kids a few years ago hung himself in their closet, one of the children that they adopted. Not easy. Not just a, you know, racially diverse Christmas card that looks really cute. It was, it's been tough. But they've seen God's power. They've seen God provide. She's a hairdresser. He's a mechanic. They have all these, it's not like they just have all this money. And uh, they wanted to take in more kids at one point when they were younger in their marriage. And she tells, tells a story about praying that God would provide the money to put an expansion on their house. They didn't have the money. She said as soon as she was done praying, she looked up and saw this, the name of this contractor on a sign. And she asked God, is that the answer to the prayer? A few days later, that contractor contacted her and, and built that addition on her house for free. And God's provided. He's taken care of them. But with the real story, the spirit in them, is where they come from. Because they were at a place at one time, early in their marriage, where she hated him. He was abusive. She actually would pray that he would die. And she said that she confesses. And when she tells the story, she admits that there were times where she would daydream about him driving off of a cliff and just being gone because he caused so much pain in her life. Now, she says, he's the godliest man she's ever met. It's the power of the spirit. It's the Spirit that does that kind of thing. And many of us are afraid of that. We want control. We want things the way that we want them, the nice Americanized, Christianized dream that we have in our heads. And God wants to move us to a place where we're radically different and we impact the world around us. That only happens by the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you got nothing. You can have a hunger, a desire, you can be ready, but you have to have the Spirit. Some of you don't have the Spirit because you're not believers in Jesus Christ. I'm not asking if you walked an aisle doing that stuff. You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are believers in Jesus. You go, how do I I have this? Well, Galatians chapter 5 will give you a whole lesson on it. Let me tell you the summary of it. Submit. Not my will, your will be done, God. You guide me by your spirit and then be ready for whatever he has for you. What's next? Let's pray. Father, come before you. And I pray for those that are believers in you. That you'd move them to the next step in their spiritual journey. that, That are people with all kinds of different circumstances, scenarios, years or days under their belt of following you, will you move each one of us to the next place today, right now? By your Spirit, would you move in us? Would you humble us before you, give us a hunger for you, and draw us closer to you? Father, if there are any here that have yet to place their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray right now, at this moment, they'd acknowledge their sin before you. They'd humble themselves before you you'd place in them a longing of eternity that cannot be satisfied by anything other than you. And they would call out upon your son, Jesus Christ, as their savior right now. And if you want to place your faith in Jesus, then right now, in this moment, just say, I want Jesus Christ to be my savior. Acknowledge your sin before God. Ask Jesus to be your savior. And he'll give you the spirit. Father, fill us with your spirit today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.